0: Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. This episode is Your Bones, Your Health, Why Osteoporosis Matters. And for this episode, I have with me Dr. Christy Tuff, who actually did the same fellowship I did in women's health and actually kind of followed a similar path. We started in an OBGYN and then switched to internal medicine and then did two-year fellowship. And so she now primarily does menopause osteoporosis. So I get to ask her all these wonderful questions about bones and sort of why all this matters, thinking about why we wanted to do this episode. And really, I think for me, I see osteopenia osteoporosis goes so underrecognized and we have so much domino effect from that. So we want to spend this episode talking all about the bones and I know our listeners are going to have a lot of questions so I'm really excited to kind of dive right in. I kind of just give you a quick introduction but tell me a little bit about your story and why you were so excited to talk about
1: bone health today. Okay. Thank you, Heather, for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here and think this idea for podcasts to enlighten women is exceptional. Particularly around osteoporosis and bone health, which is one of my clinical passions So I am a women's health specialist I practice a hybrid of internal medicine and gynecology with specialty focus in menopause, osteoporosis, sexual health, genital urinary syndrome, and menopause So all midlife issues that are important to this podcast and are important to all of our patients my interest in bones started at the Cleveland Clinic and I developed a osteoporosis program with uh, within the practice that I worked at and within that, and over the past six years, I've also seen so many patients with bone health issues that range from post-fracture care, osteoporosis prevention, and I think that a lot of patients just want to understand what is osteoporosis, what does it mean for me, what are risk factors for osteoporosis, and then the, what are the appropriate treatments. And so I think distilling it into simple information has been uh, something and that I find is my calling to disseminate appropriate scientific and clinical information for my patients so they can make good lifestyle choices for themselves.
0: Describe for me a typical scenario that you see in the office.
1: One very strong message and myth that I see are patients who tell me you know my bones feel strong, I haven't had a fracture, I haven't fallen, and even though my bone density, which is, again, a dual energy x-ray absorptiometry, which is a test that evaluates your bone mineral density or your bone strength, uh, even though their bone density says that they have osteoporosis, they're reticent to take treatment or to actually have an evaluation of osteoporosis and this is common and i don't blame patients i think it's under appreciated and underdiagnosed the significance of osteoporosis and we know osteoporosis is a silent disease until you have a fracture so unlike high cholesterol that causes you to could possibly have uh, cause you to have a heart attack osteoporosis does not have any you know symptoms or signs until you break a bone which is a very serious and debilitating event for many of my patients who are in midlife want to enjoy their life enjoy their retirement they're at their peak of their career so a lot of these patients come quite regularly, falling you know fall down and then really have untoward side effects from that so I think that the message about awareness of osteoporosis and the prevention of fracture is what we're really trying to do so we're not all just trying to get a bone density just so we can check a box you know after 65 or because our book club friend says that she had a bone density and I need one too what we're trying to do with that test that bone mineral density or BMD is trying to risk stratify patients to see who is at highest risk for fracture who needs to be treated beyond our typical calcium, vitamin D, and lifestyle recommendations? We know from uh, robust data that one in two women over the age of 50 will sustain an osteoporotic related fracture in their lifetime. So it's 50%. So you look around the room and 50% of women. And when we look at those women who, you know, we talk about other topics such as midlife issues like breast cancer and colon cancer, etc., cetera, strokes. But when we look at risk of hip fracture, that's equal to the risk of breast cancer, uterine, and ovarian cancer combined. combined. So those are our gynecologic cancers, which everyone is so fearful to mm-hmm. to get, and with rightly so, you know, no one wants to get breast cancer and ovarian cancer, which also has no signs. But actually, having a hip fracture, which is a deleterious fracture, is just as equally as common, especially as we age. So this is something we need more awareness of and more advocacy around. Uh, to elevate the importance of reducing our risk of fracture and maintaining our longevity, our height, all those things.
0: I always hear a lot when I'm doing family history or I'm trying to gauge if they might have secondary osteoporosis. So I'm trying to see if their, family, their mother did. And they're like, well, of course my mom did, She but she was 90 there's this idea that we all just are supposed to get osteopenia osteoporosis and that's just, if you age, of course you're going to get osteoporosis. What is that, what feelings does that trigger for you?
1: We know in postmenopause, women spend about a third of their life now living in their postmenopausal years. And average menopause is in this country is 51 and a half years. So yes, there is going to be some normal age-related bone loss that's going to occur. And most women now live the average life expectancy is eighty-two uh, years. So there is going to be some normal related age loss. Most of our bone experts and on, and from scientific data, we know that we really achieve peak bone density, the most bone mass that we're and have in our 20s and 30s, it sort of plateaus, and then we lose bone density. You know, with each decade, and more accelerated bone loss happens around the menopause transition, which can be up to five years for some patients, where they really lose a lot of bone in their spine, which is trabecular or spongy bone, as well as some bone in a cortical bone in your hip and wrist sites. And we know there's some age related loss. Actually, men also have age related loss, just not as much that we think that the testosterone has a protective benefit from that. So there is some normal age loss, but when your bone loss is is more accelerated from menopause or other factors you brought up family history just like the color of our hair just like the color of our eyes our bone density can also be a hereditary acquired factor also, our lifestyle, so our patients who are smokers or who have very low BMI, body mass index, our patients who are on uh, certain medications such as aromatase inhibitors for breast cancer, glucocorticoids or steroids for conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or irritable bowel disease. There's so many lifestyle as well as medications as well as medical and surgical conditions that can affect bone density. And that's why we see differing bone densities across people in perimenopause and postmenopause.
0: So another thing I hear a lot is, so it's a silent disease, as you mentioned. They don't have any pain Or they think, oh, maybe that, or or sometimes they think that's why they do have pain weight. They really have arthritis, but they think that, oh, maybe my bone density is getting low, so I have some arthritis there. Again, there's a difference between osteoarthritis. That's that wear and tear and osteoporosis, which is basically just looking at how dense the bones are, how fragile they are if you're going to fracture. And then they'll say, well, you know, but I take calcium, so isn't that enough?
1: and the answer to that question is calcium as well as its partner there vitamin d are enough for some patients. We know many of our medical societies, the North American Menopause Society, the Institutes of Medicine, Endocrine uh, Society guidelines—all these medical societies that actually should disseminate information to patients say, okay, yes, we do need some adequate amounts of calcium, and vitamin D in our diet. And when we look at generally those numbers for calcium, we're looking at twelve hundred to fifteen hundred milligrams of elemental calcium a day, and for vitamin D, about eight hundred international units to a 1,000 international units for most period of postmenopausal patients. However, if you're deficient in vitamin D, that needs to be treated and rechecked. And the reason we need calcium and vitamin D is that those are the building blocks to bone. That is what bone is made of, of some of hydroxyapatite crystals and some collagen, etc. And that's what helps mineralize our bone. But for patients who've already lost significant amount of bone density to put you in the range of osteopenia, which is low bone mass, or osteoporosis, which is more significant bone loss, and that's usually determined by your T scores on your DEXA, those patients, any amount of calcium and vitamin D that you take is not going to reverse the bone loss. And so I always recommend calcium and vitamin D as well as lifestyle factors, including smoking, aerobic exercise, weight-bearing exercise, but none of those interventions, unfortunately even with the robust scientific data we have is shown to treat osteoporosis. And I use the analogy of a home renovation that's very close to home. And and really, so when you build a home, you need raw materials like wood and concrete, and then you need the construction crew to come put those wood and concrete to make a home and make a frame. And I liken calcium and vitamin D to the same. They are the raw materials, but really you need a therapy or a medication such as a construction crew to really solidify those and either remodel the bone to make the existing bone stronger or lay down new bone, which is also another way some of the classes of medication work.
0: So another common question I'm getting a lot lately is about the calcium, meaning you know, we're starting to realize it's best to come from diet, and so my patients are starting to be cognizant that maybe they don't need their calcium. What, what do you like to recommend for calcium?
1: So there have been some studies linking excess calcium in supplement form to cardiovascular disease, heart disease. And it's best to try and get as much calcium of the 12 to 1500 milligrams in diet form if you can. And that comes in lots of different sources. So there's dairy sources, there's non-dairy sources, there's lactate milk, there's, you know, soy milk, almond milk, things like this. Um, Cheese, there is a lot of different forms, vegetables, almonds, etc. so that, you know, sardines, things that people can get calcium and vitamin D. And really it's recommended to get sardines. Oh, yes. I mean, pop open that can of sardines and just chow on down.
0: I don't think I've ever had sardines. I love like that. You can rattle off so many things
1: that okay. in calcium. I'm always like almond milk. Drink almond milk. Right. Or eat a bunch of, boatload of almonds or spinach. But again, you need so much of those things. So trying to get maybe at least half of the daily requirement in supplement form, but not overdoing it because some of these bone up or some of these people who load up on all their whole food supplements. If one is good, then ten are better. You really need to be looking at the serving sizes because sometimes the reason you're having constipation is because you're taking too many calcium supplements.
0: So what do you do or how do you like to approach osteopenia? We can kind of break down, you know, the difference between osteopenia and osteoporosis. The way I always describe osteopenia is like pre-diabetes. We really do make a pretty good case for lots of interventions in pre-diabetes phase. We do education, we do metformin, you know, those are medications for blood sugars. And so I do really think that if we ignore osteopenia, then we end up with fragility fractures and then osteoporosis. So how do you, you know, how do you, I like your analogies so far, how do you explain osteopenia and how do you like to treat osteopenia?
1: Osteopenia is now referred to as low bone mass and that's basically what it means. So normal bone density, And we have then osteopenia, which is a T-score of minus 1.1 to minus 2.4 on a bone density test, or an osteoporosis where your T-score is in the more negative range, so minus 2.5 and lower. And those thresholds really help us also put people in fracture, propensity to fracture. And when we have osteopenia, now we have some clinical guidance on, okay, yes, you have low bone mass, but are you in the higher risk to fracture or are you in the lower risk and we use this calculator score that can help and that's called the FRACS or fracture risk assessment score which is an online free tool that patients and clinicians can use to help risk stratify. So you put in your age and there's other factors such as if you're a smoker or if you use any of these medications that are offensive to the bone and you put in the T- uh, t-score at the femoral neck and then that gives you a percentage of your propensity or risk for hip fracture as well as risk for osteoporotic fracture it does have some caveats it only can be used in women over age 40 it only looks at the hip bone density so there are some drawbacks but it can help again really risk stratify because what are we trying to do with the bone density and what are we trying to do with patients is we're really trying to prevent fracture so we want to treat the people that need to be treated
0: I think that there's a big discrepancy among providers when they like to start screening. What is your take on when is the best age? A lot of women kind of look at me a little crazy if I want to do a bone density in their 50s. And some women are like, shouldn't I do? Shouldn't I shouldn't have already had like five. And so I think that there is a lot of confusion about when should you start it? Why should you get it early? So tell me a little bit about what you like to do for that.
1: So most screening guidelines say that patients who are over age 65 should have a screening bone density. And unfortunately, in this country, we are not doing well with screening even that elderly population. Less than 40% of patients, uh, Medicare publications, are getting appropriately screened. So we need to make sure everyone over age 65 is is getting screened. And then for our patients who are less than age 65 years old, again, we want to assess patients who have a higher risk for fracture. And why would you have a higher risk for fracture? it would be those patients with risk fractures for fracture and for low bone mineral density so if you have a family history if you had early menopause earlier than age 45 or premature ovarian insufficiency or surgical menopause or age 40 if you were have cushing syndrome or any of the irritable bowel syndromes we have a lot of patients now getting weight loss surgeries then have malabsorption of calcium and vitamin d so there are many reasons why Patients are higher risk, and I don't remember them all, and I lecture on this all the time, so I really think a great resource for clinicians as well as for patients to say, wait, am I in the high risk, is the National Osteoporosis Foundation, or NOF.org, which is an impartial organizations dedicated to awareness of osteoporosis and all of its treatment modalities. And it's a, it's a profound website with lots of information for patients as well as clinicians. And you can find some of those risk factors on there, as well as information on exercise and, and the therapies. One of the ways that we
0: start treating osteoporosis, and I kinda wanna go through, let's talk about some of these medications. The first one that most people either have had experience with or start with or know about is the bisphosphonates. And as providers, we both know that there is lots of fear around the side effects of bisphosphonates. You can do these orally or there's IV reclass, there's one that's in an IV infusion. But let's really get down to the real risks let me hear
1: it. Okay. All right. So, let's do a little osteos- osteoporosis primer and treatments because I think that when you understand the two classes of treatments we have, then we can sort of better understand why your doctor is offering you the treatment that he or she is so bone is a dynamic process we're always actually regenerating our skeleton actually 10 percent of your skeleton is regenerated every year so while you're sitting there and listening to this podcast your skeleton is regenerating itself wow that's a lot yeah that you can use that at your next uh, cocktail party okay so So when we're thinking about these systems of regenerating themselves, we break them down into two sort of cycles. One is modeling, which is making new bone, and remodeling, which is basically removing or being like the garbage truck to take away the old bone and then lay down new bone. So our medications are in two classes. One is the anti-resorptive medications, which basically work on the remodeling cycle. They remove old bone and then modeling can happen and making new bones. So antiresorptives will prevent further bone breakdown, and that's as simple as they, it is. They basically you know, prevent more of that bone from being broken down so that you maintain more of your bone mineral density that is there. On the other side, we have modeling cycle where your new bone is just being stimulated formulated. And our classes of medications that work on that are called our anabolics, just like anabolic steroids, although these are not steroids, they just are focused on bone building. So two classes, antiresorptives and anabolic agents. In the bisphosphonate class, which is the oldest class of osteoporosis medications, alendronate uh, was approved in 1997, so been on the market a long time now. Lots of generic available options available and lots of data. Those medications, the bisphosphonate medications, basically prevent the osteoclast, which is the bone breakdown cells, from working, so they just sort of halt everything where it is. These come in lots of forms, oral, like Heather said, intravenous, with called zoledronic acid, which is once a year, once every three months formulation. Now these all are generic as well, and these are a very good class of robust medications. They do come with some side effects. Some of the oral tablets are the tolerability with uh, patients with gastrointestinal reflux is low. Um, they can sometimes cause some of those symptoms to be worse. The IV form is well tolerated but about 10 percent of patients have a flu-like reaction like joint pains low-grade fever with that 24 to 48 hours afterwards otherwise very well tolerated and again for all the classes that medications these are all FDA approved classes of medications and all have been studied in patients over the many thousands of patients and have shown fracture reduction in both the spine as well as the hip and uh, other sites like wrist, etc. So what about the patient who says,
0: I heard if I take bisphosphonates, I'm going to have osteonecrosis of the jaw, or they're not going to say maybe osteonecrosis of the jaw, or but jaw problems are. I already have dental problems, and so I know that's a big side effect. What is the real risk of that? Okay.
1: So what you're referring to is what we call osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is not jaw pain or your mouth is shrinking or you have poor dental hygiene, osteonecrosis of the jaw is actually a serious, very rare adverse event where patients have exposed bone of the mandible or the maxilla, which is your jaw. And the thought of the etiology or the reason behind this is again, when we understand how these medications work. The bisphosphonates, as well as our anti resorptive class of medications, is preventing the bone breakdown from happening. Is that possibly there's a little bit of micro trauma or like a stress fracture in your foot that's happening that's not getting repaired? And particularly if you're like most people, we graze and eat all day, that in the jaw area there can be a little bit of micro trauma that then is not corrected. And in some patients, very rarely, again, they can set them up for this osteonecrosis of the jaw. Who we've seen this in most is patients who are cancer patients who are getting this medication in intravenous high uh, rate forms as well as patients who might have serious comorbidities such as uh, autoimmune conditions or people who are on high dose steroids cancer or patients with poor periodontal disease the rate is very 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 low again so in the order of one to upwards of 20 cases 10,000 patients. So again, when we're thinking about the risk of fracture, as I mentioned, the risk of fracture is one in two women over the age of 50, so 50%. And when we're thinking about the rate of osteonecrosis of the jaw, it's less than 0.1%. And that's in studies that have looked over not just one year, but up to six years in some cases with the IV forms of medication. So again, I think it's balancing the risk of medication which is low with the risk of a fracture, which in most cases for our postmenopausal women is much higher. And I think these conversations about absolute risk is very important because, yes, no one wants to get any bad things happen to them. And in this country, no woman wants to age as well. It's a separate topic. No one wants any adverse events. Unfortunately, you know, just walking across the street, you're exposing yourself to risk. I think it's, again, balancing this risk-risk discussion and understanding that we have studied the risk in tens of thousands of patients versus having a number of only a 100. The last part you said about the real
0: risks of the bisphosphonates osteonecrosis awesome of the jaw is so helpful for anyone listening who is a provider to sort of keep that little number in the back of your mind because I do hear that very pervasive myth that the bisphosphonates are really going to hurt people and not help them. And you're right, it's a balance of the risk of fracture, which is really high, and the risk of adverse event, which is really low. Let's talk about some of the um, sub-Q injectables. Someone who maybe has been on a bisphosphonate and they've still had a fracture, or they didn't like it, or they didn't tolerate it, what are the things they could go to next?
1: guidelines now, you have osteoporosis or have had a fracture or are intolerant to other therapies, you don't necessarily first have to start with the bisphosphonate. And actually, this is a paradigm shift that's happening in the field of osteoporosis, which is very exciting. So a couple of years ago, we used to see patients, we used to, you know, start bisphosphonates first or start with an anti-reservative class of medications. And we, again, have good data on that. However, there's a little bit of a paradigm shift happening now where experts and the research in the field has really pushed towards starting what we call the anabolic or bone building agents first. And the reason is we get more bang for our buck if we do that. We know that we build bone first and we can maintain bone at those important sites like our spine and our hip and our wrist. And then possibly go on to a anti-resorptive medication like a bisphosphonate or a human monoclonal antibody called denosumab, which has been approved uh, since 2010. So again, we have 10 years of safety and efficacy data with that one as well, showing that a twice yearly injection of up to 10 years really can increase bone mineral density at the spine actually up to about 20% and have sustained a low vertebral and non-vertebral, so non-spine a fracture reduction. So I think again, this is why the field of osteoporosis is exciting, but also I think confusing to patients and clinicians alike. Things are always evolving. Science is exciting. Women are aging, so we are studying more women, but I think when you think about medications, now more doctors I think are recommending bone building agents followed by antiresorptive agents. We do have one new anabolic or bone-building agent called abaloparatide, which is similar to something that's already approved called teriparatide. Both work on the PTH or parathyroid receptor that works to basically work on the bone modeling system and uh, lay down new bone more quickly. Very important for our patients who've had a fracture or who are at high risk for fractures or falls. Because they work very quickly within the first six months to really work on fracture reduction and bone mineral density improvement, and we know so robustly that fractures beget fractures. It's very commonly understood that once you've had one fracture, your risk of having another fracture increases by 85%, and one spine fracture increases your risk of another spine fracture by ninefold. And Those aren't just, you lost height, you have to wear higher heels. Those have medical uh, consequences, like people don't take deeper breaths, you're more increased risk of falling. You have back pain. I mean, I've seen countless patients with spine fractures with such significant back pain. So again, we wanna try and reduce these fractures. So again, the treatment goals are really aligned with what we're trying to do in terms of improving awareness, is that we wanna build bone and maintain it.
0: How are you finding that people are adapting to using the anabolic agents? Now, the anabolic agents, they have to give themselves a home injection every day. And oftentimes when I start kind of talking about this with my patients, I get the like, mm-mm, mm-mm look in their eyes. And I, I really kind of say, I, I, if you push past this, I, I really this is a really great option. How have you found that experience?
1: So I describe it to my patients. One, I think a visual helps. So there are some visuals um, of looking at the actual uh, needle that comes with the uh, subcutaneous kits that can help. I also say, you know, for patients who take a cholesterol medication, they don't just take it ad hoc. They take it every single day and it's something that's gonna reduce their cholesterol and reduce their risk of a heart attack. And so similarly with bone medication, I think actually taking it daily is empowering and you're doing something to empower your bone health every single day. The subcutaneous injections are insulin syringe needles of so 31 gauge, so even less than what you get in your butterfly blood draw. So, and a lot of my patients, exactly what you said, once you can show them how to do it, they, you demonstrate how to do it, you show them in the office, it becomes very simple and the nice thing about abaloparatide, which is the newer medication, is that it does not need to be refrigerated. So my patients who travel I can take that with them. And again, not just, yes, the syringe is sometimes a, a hurdle to get over, but these medications are only approved for 18 months to up, you know, two years for teraparitide. So 18 months for abaloparatide. So this is not forever. You are not going to be like in sticking a needle in yourself forever. So again, this is a short-term treatment for long-term gains yeah
0: that's actually really great advice as a provider i do find you're right the imagery is probably helpful and i like that whole part about being empowering that's really actually quite interesting and probably not like a direction i've taken before but i might i might steal that from you this is a question for me after they've done the injectables for 18 or 20 24 months do you recommend this fascinates after that
1: we're seeing more studies that are tried either sequentially, means one after another, or in concert. And the nice thing with the recent approval of abaloparatide was that it was studied for uh, 18 months, and then it was followed up with a generic alendronate, or a trade name is Fosamax, for up to 43 months. So again, a very long-term study. you know, thousands of patients. And that was showing that we are building bone density, and then we're locking it in, and we're using an anabolic and then an anti-resorptive medication. And the tolerability of both together seemed to be great in the study populations, we didn't see any signal for adverse events or over what we see with uh, the medication separately. And the efficacy benefit was huge for both vertebral or spine fractures and then nonvertebral fractures, which was reduced by 39% after 43 months. So you, do, you don't want to just, for any osteoporosis medication, just like, again, my analogy with the cholesterol medication, we don't put you on a cholesterol medication and then say, okay, we're going to take you off and wait for your heart attack to come or wait for your cholesterol just skyrocket again, unless you've done a lot of weight loss. Or, and we don't just wait for those things. So we don't want you to just stop an osteoporosis medication and then do nothing about it. Particularly a caveat here is if you were on denosumab or prolea. The package insert now has shown by a, a retrospective study of a patients who discontinued the medication after getting more than two doses that there was a safety signal uh, for an increased risk of multiple vertebral fractures for patients who were at high risk for those uh, fractures who discontinued the medication. The verdict is still out on how we can identify those patients who might be at higher risk, but at this point, we do not recommend stopping denosumab unless you're going to transition on to another therapy.
0: So how do we really get media perception to really in improve upon Bone health and really point the needle towards that because you know, I think we spent upwards of $16 billion on fractures, you know, probably more than that. That's probably old data. And we know, as you touched upon earlier, more women will suffer an osteoporotic fracture than they will from heart attacks, strokes, and breast cancers combined. If We know all this, yet. We're not running races for osteoporosis yet, or maybe we are, but you know, we're not we don't have the advocacy in the media that we do for other diseases. So how do we change that? How do we move the needle?
1: So I think you by doing this podcast helps and awareness helps. There has been a call to action by thirty nine different organizations all around the surrounding bone, such as ASBMRs and National Osteoporosis Foundation, all saying we need to really work on educating our patients and treating our patients so we reduce this, what we call treatment gap in osteoporosis. And it's not for our own betterment, it's really for our patients. We know that hip fracture rates, again, 25% of people die after a hip fracture within a year, 20% 20% do not live independently and do not walk independently, and we know that those rates of hip fracture are plateauing, and they used to be decreasing, but now that people are more reticent to start medications and we're not doing as good a job on screening, and other factors I'm simplifying, but we are now seeing more hip fractures, which equals more cost of the healthcare system, uh, earlier deaths, more debilitation, and there is expected to be about 3 million fractures per year in 2025. So how do we move the needle? I think more awareness, more media messages, and more pharmaceutical companies who also talk about their treatments and put more healthcare dollars into helping patients understand what their medications can do for them and how significant this is a, a, a public health issue.
0: So we talked about at the beginning the patient who has the low bone density, but she says, you know, I still feel like my bones are strong. I feel fine. And after you've kind of dug into a little bit of this, how do you move her? Do you feel like she's moved into the pre-contemplated phase where she might want to start treatment? Do you feel like you get successful in that? Or what happens when your patients still are kind of resistant to start things? What other things in your repertoire do you pull from?
1: All good medicine and we all try and be the best clinicians that we can, really we need to do motivational interviewing as well as shared decision-making. And so I think sometimes just asking patients, what do you know about osteoporosis? Do you know that osteoporotic bone looks like a loofah where this is why your bones would actually fracture because they look thin and they are weaker And so what do people come with understanding? Because I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding. And if you can level the playing field about understanding why you're concerned for them and you're not rushing to medication, but you're also not rushing to put them on more calcium, I think that helps. So I always say with my residents patients, okay, so what do you know? and before i even ask you any questions i see you have a laundry list of 50 questions you want to ask me so let's make sure that together i look at those first and i address every you know every single one that we can and I think that really helps because most patients just want to be listened to, and most women, I think, deserve that. A lot of these women are midlife women. This is why yep. I'm a women's health specialist. I think we want to treat patients beyond their reproductive years because they are contribute to society and are members of our family and our friends, mm-hmm. and so they just want evidence based discussion. And so for the reticent patient, I really sort of try and keep it as evidence based as I possibly can, knowing there's some lacking of data with non-pharmaceuticals and in at the exercise fields and really give a prescription and osteoporosis homework. I think that that helps too. I give patients things that I've written uh, on speaking of women's health about osteoporosis. I give them facts from the NOF. I give them articles that I've written or I think that are appropriate for them. So, And I give them homework. And I say, okay, if we're not ready to do medications, we're going to do a secondary workup on your uh, bones. Sometimes that's checking your thyroid and your calcium and your vitamin D and or 24-hour urine, et cetera. And I'm going to give you this homework and I'm going to have you come back for a second visit. And I'm going to readdress this again. And sometimes I, I say it, we're, I'm in it for the long game. It is sometimes with osteoporosis,
0: it's just really shared decision-making. That's why we want to do this podcast as we really, providers, as, as, as doctors who really care about women, we want to make it known why we we do want to give you these medications. Not that we just want to throw you on another medication, especially if you're in menopause or if you're midlife, you might be taking other medications, so there's resistance to to taking more. But you know why you should take stock in your bones. That's why we believe in this, and I love your passion for it. It's it's wonder. It's awesome. It's so cool. What's kind of your take home message?
1: So my take-home message is that I want awareness of osteoporosis to increase at the national level, at the patient level, at our clinician level, even amongst internists, gynecologists, endocrinologists, and understand that osteoporosis is an important public health topic. Our midlife women are asking about it. People want to get their bone densities. And again, the reason for bone density is to risk stratify who and when you might get a fracture, and we want to prevent that first fracture if we can. Calcium and vitamin D are important. They're integral, so is exercise and not smoking, keeping alcohol low, but none of those are going to completely reverse bone loss. It is is more accelerated. So we have an array of great therapies and options and more coming down the pipeline because this is a, a condition that affects midlife women and aging women. So thankfully, we have the science that's evolving along with us.
0: So that's great. If you were able to listen to this podcast and you have friends or family members that you want to share it with, please do, because this is just one way that we feel like we can increase our advocacy. And you can only see so many patients that live in the cities that we live in. But if we can reach anyone with this, that's sort of our whole goal. And also, if you like my mom, who is my beta tester, I had to download all these podcasts for her. So if you have a mom who needs to listen to this. Help her by downloading it. So it was so fun talking to you. We have so much more to learn. We're actually together at a conference to, again, just improve our own knowledge and education and what's sort of on the horizon for women's health. I thank you guys so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, we'll link tons of information to this as well. Feel free to get a hold of us and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or afternoon or evening. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.